Welcome to the third edition of Silver Screen Superman, Bureau 42's retrospective for the 75th anniversary of the character. This month we're going to be looking at the first movie serial about Superman, starring Kirk Allen. So should start off by talking a little bit about serials in general and what movie serials were about. Uh, movie serials started really started to kick into gear in about 1919 when The Perils of Pauline was first released. It's a little bit different than most. The Perils of Pauline is the source of a lot of the melodramatic cliches that we see. The villain who twists his mustache, the woman tied to the railroad tracks, the damsel in distress, a lot of that came from The Perils of Pauline. And it was released in what's known as a serial format. So what they were finding is that you couldn't always get feature films to change rapidly enough and get enough big names to keep business going in a theater from week to week. So they came up with the idea of movie serials. They were basically three to four hour stories instead of just two hours or less like most movies were, but they were released a chapter at a time. Now, in the time of The Perils of Pauline, they were just regular chapters, whereas in the case of a lot of later ones, including Superman, most of the chapters ended with a cliffhanger. The idea was that the theater would show all chapters of a serial. In the case of Superman, there's 15 chapters over the course of 15 weeks. So the customers would have to come every single week, regardless of what the feature was, in order to see every chapter of the serial. Now, when this first Superman serial hit in 1948, a typical day at the movies was a much longer program. I mean, even nowadays, we have commercials first, then trailers, which are the ads for other films, and then the feature. Back in the late 1940s, a typical day would be more like starting with a newsreel, going to a short cartoon, like the Fleischer Famous Studios or the Disney and Warner Brother films later on, followed by a chapter of a serial, and then probably a couple of features. So one movie ticket was good for the entire afternoon, and it was a changing program. The serials stuck around until the early 1950s, and they were popular with audiences because it you know gave them something each time and these were audiences that had largely grown out of the days when movies were growing out of animated postcards and for all there a lot of movies were only 20 30 maybe 40 minutes so even 50 minute chapters felt like you were getting a lot and it was a full afternoon for these features which is part of the reason a lot of features of the day were in that 60 to 80 minute range and why the official definition of a feature film in terms of Oscars to get full length feature instead of short film you only need to hit a 40 minute mark serials had been popular for almost 30 years by the time Superman finally made his way into the movie serials and it it wasn't that superheroes were unpopular. Uh, the first live-action superhero to hit the screen was the Billy Batson version of Captain Marvel that came out in 1941, again in a serial format. And Batman had already had his own serial, the Green Hornet had. So a lot of the serials were popular, especially in World War II, because that really made it easy for the exhibitors to keep people coming every week or coming very regularly in spite of the war when there weren't as many feature films being produced, partly because a lot of the, the stars before World War II left to serve, some of whom had a hard time finding work when they came back because they'd sort of moved out of the uh, cultural popularity, and others who did have no problems coming back. Uh, for example, uh, Jimmy Stewart was one of the biggest stars of the day, starred in Harvey. A lot of audiences today know him as the star of It's a Wonderful Life. He made it very high up as an officer in the military. A lot of his missions are not publicly known, and James Duen was actually one of the members of his troop at one point. I'm not exactly sure how that worked, given that James Duen, who played Scotty on Star Trek, is Canadian, who was faking a Scottish accent for Star Trek. Well, Jimmy Stewart was American, but anyway, that's the information I've seen. It may well be incorrect. I just don't see how that works. But they did both serve. That's how 
James Doohan lost his right middle finger, which you can see in the original Star Trek if you know what you're looking for. It's probably most obvious in Star Trek V. But that's a major digression. Anyway, it took a while to get the rights together and to get Superman made, partly because there were very high expectations for Superman's serial, and it could not be done cheaply and easily. You can see that in the serial that finally did get produced. There's a few interesting things about the way it happened on screen. One of the most notable things that you'll find is that there is no on-screen credit for Superman. We see Noel Neal get credited as Lois Lane, and she actually gets top billing. Noel Neal would be recast as Lois Lane in the second season of The Adventures of Superman starring George Reeves when Phyllis Coates left. Since none of them expected the show to get picked up, she'd taken another job. The studio was basically billing it as saying, well, there's no mere mortal who could fill the boots of Superman, and so they just got Superman himself to play his own part. So Kirk Allen starred as both Superman and Clark Kent with no credit on screen of any kind. And I really wonder if the Screen Actors Guild would let you get away with that today. But this was known as one of the most financially successful series of all time. Part of what they did is by doing it as a major adaptation. So a lot of the other serials were not well adapted. If you look at the Captain America serial that had come before this, Captain America was not Steve Rogers, who had been transformed into a super soldier by Dr. Ergstein's serum. Instead, Captain America was a district attorney who was just a guy with a suit, just a masked vigilante fighting crime. Uh, watching that serial, it really feels to me like the idea was more like Green Hornet, and they just didn't have the rights to that character, so they bought another one. This one is very closely related to the source material. It starts with the destruction of Krypton and Clark Kent being sped to Earth. Now, at the time, he wasn't known as Clark Kent, at least not in the context of the story. And this is the first part where you see where the budgetary limitations come into play, as well as the technological limitations at the time. Uh, Krypton and the rocket that blasts away from it are animated, even though the scenes on Krypton are done live-action, played by live-action people. Animated special effects are very common in this, including pretty much all of Superman's flights. If it's not the case where he can just jump over a camera that's sitting on the ground, Superman flying is animated. Now, one interesting thing to note, uh, if you look at the Matrix movies, the Wachowski brothers wanted to have something different, a visual that we had never seen before when they had Neo flying in the sequels. So they created a vortex that sort of spun around a little bit around his feet, and that was later done in Smallville for a similar effect. Before Clark flew, you'd get this little vortex of air around his feet. The Wachowskis just tasked their special effects crew with coming up something that hadn't been seen before. Oddly enough, that happens right here in this serial. The animated Superman does have a little vortex appear around his feet every time he flies. And I wonder if that was an artistic choice because they thought it looked cool, or if that was an easier way to make it line up, because often what you'd have is Kirk Allen running out as the only moving part on the screen screen, surrounded by props or static images, crouch, and then he's replaced by an animated character. So they'd basically stop the camera, he'd move out of the way, and they'd restart it. I wonder if that vortex around the feet was there solely to mask the difficulties in getting the images to line up perfectly when they're replacing a live-action character with an animated character right from frame to frame. But nonetheless, the images are there. There's also images where Superman is standing in front of what is clearly a screen. There's a moment when Lois throws a brick out a window and she hits the sheet that has the painting of the building across the street. So after the brick goes through the window, smashing the window, there's ripples going through the building in the background. Similarly, when she's going to pick someone up at a train station, she's casting a shadow 
on the backdrop as there's everybody in that scene. So you can tell that it is just a backdrop and they're not at a complete locale. There's times when you can see the shadows of the boom mic cast on cars and in between the actors as they're speaking. So it is, it's not high art and it wasn't the best made films of the time. Uh, serials were designed to be cheap and on the fly, just a way to keep revenue going. And in the vast majority of cases, the art of cinema had nothing to do with it. And it was all about the dollar. We see a bit of that here, but this was still successful. And one of the reasons it is successful is largely because they were using proven stories. Now, in this case, as I said, it was adapted and it was accurate, but it wasn't an adaptation of the comics. The comics were popular, but they were not the most popular incarnation of Superman. The incarnation of Superman that they find to be the most popular at the time was the radio show. So those are the stories they adapted. Uh, At the time, in the comics, Clark had been dropped off at an orphanage by a passing motorist. This serial and the Adventures of Superman series later were the ones that introduced adoptive parents for Clark, who named him Clark Kent, and raised him as a human. In this case, they're still known as Eben and Sarah Kent, Eben being short for Ebenezer, which apparently was a much more common name before Charles Dickens used it. In this, they also adapted some of the first kryptonite stories. Uh, They brought through a radio villain known as the Spider Lady, played by Carol Foreman, who played in a lot of serials, even playing opposite Kirk Allen again later in Blackhawks, which was another comic book adaptation that came out in 1951. They also adapted some of Clark's first adventures. So if you listen to the radio program, you will hear that Clark's origin story and how he got the job with the Daily Planet will actually vary a bit. There were two runs of the radio show. It started in 1940 on one network, got cancelled in about 1942, and was picked up later by the Mutual Network. And it's the Mutual Network radio series that is adapted here. In that series, there were miners trapped in a mine, and Clark gets a job with the Daily Planet by getting the story when Jimmy and Lois can't. So there was a bit of a rivalry between them, and that rivalry is actually quite pronounced here, much more so than in most adaptations of Superman after the late 70s. Right down to the point where Lois takes the Daily Planet coupe, the company car at one point, and she gives her keys to Clark and tells him to use her car when he needs to drive after something, and Clark doesn't realize that she's had her car reported stolen specifically to tie Clark up so that she can get the story and he can't. So it's not even a particularly friendly rivalry. They really are gunning to make sure that the stories are theirs and don't go to the other person. Now with Clark and Superman, in that case you could see it more as, well, this is a dangerous story. He doesn't want anyone else in harm's way. But Lois is very much thinking of her career. As it stands, it is an enjoyable enough serial if you understand what serials were like, how they were structured, and what the tone typically was. I mean, the structure with the cliffhanger every 10 to 15 minutes, it's something that works well for keeping people coming back. You see a lot of it in TV shows when they have the multi-part episodes. They usually end part one on a cliffhanger, and part two if there's more than two parts. Or even a lot of season finales are on those cliffhanger endings, you know, with the term cliffhanger actually coming from the movie serials, because a lot of the early movie serials, the intermediate chapters literally ended with someone hanging off a cliff. So there are also a few interesting and notable names going through the credits on this one. So one of the writers was George H. Plimpton, who wrote a lot of serials and was actually probably best known today for his unique animation style in the Plimptoons. It was also co-written by Joseph F. Poland, who was not quite as prolific but still had 138 writing credits to his name, going back to the scenario as it was called in the silent films from 1913. 
Now, as mentioned, Kirk Allen got a fair amount of work during the serial era, but that's about it. He, he did have a quick and uncredited cameo as General Sam Lane in the 1978 Superman film, directed by Richard Donner, that we'll be discussing in June, although his part is only really viewable in the director's cut. This actually had two directors, which in this case it's kind of like the first and second unit directors. Often you'll have multiple units working on a film or on a TV series. The first unit or the, the main director works with the primary cast members, while the second unit works with some elsewhere. It may have been a division of labor like that, because this is a fairly long story, and when you're trying to do it cheaply and on the fly in the serial format, it's fairly challenging to do. And every chapter has both Spencer Gordon Bennett and Thomas Carr listed as directors. Given the, the structure of the serial where we have a lot of scenes focused on Superman and a lot of scenes focused on Lois and Jimmy, it wouldn't surprise me if Bennett and Carr were dividing the workload according to who was being directed in those scenes. At least for the most part, they obviously had a lot of scenes together. Uh, Thomas Carr would go on to direct 37 episodes of the 104-episode run of the Adventures of Superman TV series starring George Reeves and also starring Noel Neal. Noel Neal as Lois Lane is, in my opinion, a bit of a disappointment. She is not a particularly good actress by any stretch of the imagination. Her goal in her personal life was to become a journalist, and she was basically spotted and convinced to work in a nightclub to pay the bills. The nightclub was owned by Bing Crosby. It was actually the Turf Club in Del Mar, California. And with Bing Crosby and that influence, she was signed by Paramount Pictures. Most of her work was in movie serials. And after the serial era petered out, she got the role of Lois Lane on the TV series. Since then, she had an uncredited cameo as Lois Lane's mother in the 1978 Superman. She had credited as Lois Lane's mother in the 50th anniversary TV special, a guest spot on the Superboy TV series in 1991, and another guest spot in Superman Returns. So looking over her IMDb credits, there is a lot of early credits in the serials that are not well known, a lot of things I hadn't heard of, and then from there it's pretty much Superman, Superman, Superman. Now, Tommy Bond, who played Jimmy Olsen, has a few credits. Again, a lot of shorts and serials early in his career, not a lot later in his career. Aside from working in the art department, he was working as a prop manager under a lot of the more prominent shows, including Rowena Martin's Laugh-In, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, and Sonny and Cher Comedy Hour. Probably the most prolific actor in the bunch is Pierre Watkin, who plays Perry White. And if you look him up, you'll see that he worked right up until his death, getting a lot of guest spots in a lot of TV series, including the Westerns. Uh, there's also an actor who plays basically two walkthrough roles. They're very minor roles. I'm only mentioning because his real name is Wally West. Well, he's born Tom Wynn, but he worked as Wally West, which is a little bit interesting for those who know the history of the DC comics that this is based on. So we have is a decent serial that combines and adapts three or four of the major storylines from the radio series, and it turned out to be very profitable. It had its own posters, as the animated series did, although that's much more common as far as the serials were concerned than it was for the animated shorts. And it was successful enough that they did a sequel. So that's what we'll be discussing next month, the 1950 serial Adam Man vs. Superman. Please join us again then.